Ave Podcast listeners, a quick notice before we get started on today's podcast. Win in Rome is now crowdfunding for the seventh series. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, would like to hear more and would like to show your support, there's a link in the notes of this episode and you can find it on Kickstarter for the next few weeks. If you support, but most importantly, if you continue to listen, thank you for everything. And on that note, here's the final episode of Series 6. Ave, and welcome to When in Rome. And now, cue the music. When in Rome is a podcast about place and space in the Roman Empire. This is episode LXXIII, Paston. My guest is Dr. Tiziana D'Angelo, Director of the Archaeological Park of Paston and Velia. Also joining us is Dr. Julian Shepard, Director of the Trendle Centre at La Trobe University. Paston is a city on the western coast of Italy, founded by Greeks and known in the modern day as the site of impressive temples and elaborately painted tombs. This interview was recorded as part of the 2022 Trendle Lecture, presented by the AD Trendle Research Centre for Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. Here's Tiziana D'Angelo. You know, when we think about Italy, of course, you know, we think about Rome, we may think about the Etruscans. But actually, you know, there's a whole side of Italy, which is Greek. There's a Greekness, in particular, in southern Italy. That was the area that was colonized by the Greeks, starting from the 8th century BC. So very much of, you know, the first millennium BC in southern Italy is kind of dominated by the Greek presence, dominated by Greek culture and Greek identity. And there are a number of these sites of these cities that are on the coast. And Poseidonia, so the city of Poseidon, was one of these Greek colonies. You know, it's a Greek city, but what we have to think, we have to think about this site as a very multicultural site. Its colonial aspect, its colonial identity influenced significantly its entire history. And not just its Greek history. Poseidonia, Hestium was founded as a Greek colony at the end of the 7th century BC as Poseidonia. It later turned into a Lucanian city, and later on it became a Latin colony. So different populations, different cultures. And as I said, it's precisely this colonial identity that very much influenced its development. So what we find there is a city with different hearts. And when we walk through the site, you know, uh, one of its main features, probably its temples. So there are three magnificent Greek Doric temples that are still standing. And that's one of the things that impress our visitors the most. But there's, of course, you know, a lot more to discover there. And what we realize, looking a, a bit further, is that from the very beginning, so from the end of the 7th century BC, what we found in Poseidonia is this Greek population interacting with other Italic populations and then later on with the Romans. Another thing that I think is important is that Poseidonia is a peculiar colony in the sense that its mother city is not in Greece. It's a colony of a colony. So a little bit further south on the Ionian coast, we see the city of Sybaris. And that was Poseidonia's mother city. So the Greeks founded Sybaris. And then at some point at the end of the 7th century, a group 
of the Sybarids moved north and founded this new colony. That's another aspect. That's another thing to think about when we try and reconstruct its history, when we try and understand also the development of its culture. So can you give me a bit more detail about the size and layout of Pacedonia and and give me a sense of how important it was? It seems to be a significant colony in the area and it has a role to play in the region, doesn't it? Yeah, so when we think about um, the region where Poseidonia is located, which is basically between Campania and Lucania, that's an area where we find several other Greek colonies. That's where we find even the proper Greek colony, Cumae. So Cumae, Neapolis, modern-day Naples, Pithecusai, these are all Greek settlements. Poseidonia is a good-sized city, founded right on the coast. It had a very important role when we think about, like a commercial role, but it also played a very important role later on in terms of its interactions with the Romans, in terms of its role in the conflicts between the Macedonians, the Romans, these Italian populations. When we go to Pestum today, what we find is that the city is is surrounded by walls that are um, very well preserved. Now, these walls are about five kilometers. They were not built right at the start, so they were not built when the city was founded, but only at a later stage. But they give us a sense of its size. What is also very interesting is that in the city, when the colonists arrived, the first concern that they have was to define the public space. And that's a strip of land that you know is about 25 hectares, essentially. That's where we find two of the three urban temples that are preserved in Pestum, the so-called Temple of Neptune and the so-called Basilica. And these are precisely located in that kind of strip of public space. You know, that was the most important part of the city. That's where we find, you know, the centuries, that's where we find the most important political buildings, political spaces, like the Ecclesiasterion, which was built in the early 5th century BC for political assemblies. That's where we find the Heron, which is the tomb, or rather the cenotaph, of the mythical founder of the city. So they're all located in this, almost this central strip of land. And then east and west of this area, uh, we find residential quarters, we find the houses. When we go west, those residential areas have been excavated extensively. We know quite a lot about Roman houses. We know a bit, but still more and more about Greek houses. When we go east of this public space, our knowledge is a little bit more limited. And the reason is the fact that Pestum had a long and continuous history. And in that particular area, uh, modern houses were built. The museum was built. So, for example, the National Archaeological Museum at the moment is built on top of the ancient Greek site, you know, basically on top of part of the Agora. So we know a little bit less about that area. And then when we go beyond those city walls, just right outside the city walls, that's where we discover a whole new city, the city of the dead, the cemeteries. There's so much that we can learn about this city from its cemeteries, about Poseidonia, about the Lucanian city of Pestum, about the Latin colony by investigating its tombs. And so we have these necropolis, we have these cemeteries that are essentially scattered all outside the city walls, some of them very close to the city walls, but other in a more peripheral areas. So even, you know, 1.5 kilometers away from city walls. 
So as I said, you know, the city of the living and then the city of the dead. I'll circle back to the tombs if I can in just a second, but but in particular the temples that you talked about, those dominate the skyline and the imagination of what you think about Paestum as a site. So how has our knowledge about these temples changed over the years and how does this inform our knowledge about the Greeks and how they were living in the area at the time? I mean, I noticed when you talked about the temples there, you addressed them as so-called. One was the so-called Temple of Neptune, the other was the so-called Basilica. So how has our knowledge about them changed and informed what we know about the area? It has changed a lot. We have to think that, the, as I mentioned earlier, this site had a very long history, you know, that cross millennia, essentially, from, you know, the end of the 7th century BC all the way down to today. But at the same time, you have to think that from the medieval period, roughly, to the 18th century, the site experienced a gradual decline. And it got to a point that it was essentially forgotten, which is very odd for us to come to terms with, right? It's very difficult for me because, you you know, if you're thinking that those temples They've not been excavated. It's not that they were buried. We're not dealing with a site like Pompeii or Herculaneum that had been buried and then were excavated in the 18th century and came back to light. I mean, those magnificent temples had always been there. So for us to think that they were at some point forgotten is very strange. But that's precisely what happened to the point that when in the 18th century, the phenomenon of the Grand Tour sort of exploded, these young aristocrats from England, from Northern Europe, traveling to the Mediterranean in particular as part of their education. So it's only at some point in the 18th century that Pestum became one of the destinations of the Grand Tour. It wasn't at the beginning, precisely because there was next to no knowledge about it. You know, um, People would go to Rome, then they went to Pompeii, they went to Herculaneum. But it was only after a very important artists and writers and philosophers you know, got there, then Pestum was, you know, so to speak, rediscovered. And we're talking about you know, Winkelmann traveling to Pestum. We're talking about Goethe. We're talking about Piranesi. So in the 18th century, as part of the Grand Tour, we witnessed the rediscovery of this site. And when these visitors arrived to Pestum, they saw these magnificent Doric temples. And the first interpretations that were given of them were, of course, not accurate. That's perfectly understandable. So, for example, the two southern temples, the Temple of Neptune and the so-called Basilica. So the Temple of Neptune was not dedicated to Neptune. It was not dedicated to Poseidon. There's a bit of wishful thinking here. The idea is that since this is the city of Poseidonia, so it is the city of the sea god, the city of Poseidon, people thought clearly that is the most monumental of these three temples and it must have been dedicated to Poseidon. But today, thanks to the work of archaeologists, thanks to stratigraphic excavations, we know that that is not the case. Was most likely dedicated to a goddess who is extremely important for the Greeks of Poseidonia. And I'm talking about Hera, the goddess Hera, who was also worshipped outside the city walls in a very important sanctuary. The Temple of Neptune is still keeps this nickname, its first interpretation, but nowadays was most likely dedicated to Hera. Someone is still considering the possibility that he was dedicated to Apollo. And as for the basilica, that's another interesting story, because, of course, when these first visitors arrived to Pestum, 
the roof is not preserved. But unlike the Temple of Neptune, the so-called Basilica didn't even have a pediment. And that particular structure made it look like a Roman type of architecture. And we're talking about the Basilica. So Basilica, not in the sense of a church, but Basilica in the sense of a type of building that was used for commercial activities, for you know, judicial activities, and so on. They soon figured out that this indeed was not a basilica, but it was another temple. But the temple still keeps this nickname. So this is uh, most likely another temple dedicated to Hera. So we're dealing with a sanctuary in this area that was probably dedicated to her, but it's still called so-called basilica. And then you have to think that from the 20th century, scientific stratigraphic excavations were carried out in the city. Even very recently, we had uh, important excavations carried out, for example, um, at the Temple of Neptune. Their knowledge of these buildings actually changed significantly even in uh, recent years. They kind of tell us an interesting story. These three temples, Temple of Athena, so-called Temple of Neptune and so-called Basilica, were all built within less than a century, between roughly mid-6th and mid-5th century BC. The Temple of Neptune, the way we see it, is the most recent one. It was completed roughly by the mid-5th century. So they tell us about a city that at that point was very much a construction site. Between the mid-6th and the mid-5th, that's when the city of Poseidonia was built. You know, streets were built, these temples were built. And this must have had a huge impact on the population as well. You know, you have to think that these stone blocks, you know, were carried through the city, you know, from the quarries to the city. You have to think that they were put in place using, you know, some pretty sophisticated machinery. So it's a city that was being built at that point. And that also tells us a lot about its importance, the kind of wealth that the city had, about its means. It tells us about also the workforce. Because in order to build, you know, temples like that and so quickly, I mean, I don't know about you, but I always find it shocking that, you know, these buildings, they were all done within a couple of decades. And it's astonishing. You know, sometimes there are houses that take longer. So this gives us a sense of the monumentality of the city already in the archaic period. Gillian, if I could draw you into the conversation, uh, Tiziana mentioned the tombs not too long ago, and I, I know they're of particular interest to you. If you could take me through the tombs, so to speak, uh, how impressive are the tombs that you find around the Paestum area? And can you see a transition in how burials are presented across the different phases of the colony? I'm talking, you know, Greek to Lucanian to Roman. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. So like every ancient city, the cemeteries of Paestum are scattered outside the walls. And they're at sort of particular points. And to some degree, there might even be some sort of social distinctions between them. For example, there's a rather isolated cemetery at a place called Ponte del Ferro, where the graves seem to be very poor. The bodies were covered with misshapen roof tiles that had been misfired, so they couldn't have ever been used as roof tiles. There's not much in the way of grave goods. The bodies are just buried in sand. That seems to be quite a, a specific graveyard possibly for some sort of subaltern group, although all these cemeteries need some really important work on them. And then you've got a bunch of other cemeteries. One of the things I think is interesting, particularly for the Greek period at Pistum, is, and this is often commented on, the terms are relatively undifferentiated. 
Uh, you don't get an enormous variation that you do at other Greek sites, even in that period. So that could suggest not so much that the society at Pistum is fantastically egalitarian, but that there could be some sort of levelling ideology in place, whereby whatever your social identity during your life was, that is suppressed at death and everybody is buried in a sort of a similar fashion. And that could even involve not just local custom, but even what's known as sumptuary legislation. In other words, there are laws on how you can get buried. That said, there is a bit of variation. It's a short spectrum, but there is a spectrum of sort of wealthy and less wealthy tombs. And there are indications that there was an interest in painting the insides of tombs at Pistum. And some of the cemeteries have produced these painted tombs. Most of them, and we're talking here about, you say, the 5th century, are fairly plain. It's just the odd sort of red stripe or something like that, black stripe perhaps around the inside. But the interior is plastered, has this paintwork. Perhaps the grave goods might be a bit more exciting than they are in other tombs. But then we have this extraordinary exception so far, which is the tomb of the diver where we have this quite elaborate symposium scene around the walls of the tomb. And we're talking about the inside of the tomb here. And then, of course, on the lid, this really enigmatic scene of this man jumping off some wall or tower or something into a body of water. And so far, nothing else like that has been found. I keep hoping maybe something else like that will appear at the site, but who knows what. But there must have been, I think, something really quite, extraordinary about this individual that he somehow qualified for this sort of tomb and other people just didn't go that far normally. Um, Then, of course, it all goes completely gangbusters when you get to the Lucanian period and the fourth century when there are the most fabulous painted tombs. Again, there there are sort of a relative minority, if you like. I think correctly, maybe there are about 80 painted tombs or something like that from that period. And there are more just completely plain ones. But nevertheless, the idea of painting a tomb really takes off at Pestum in the Lucanian period. So it's an absolutely fascinating area. I think these tombs can really tell you an awful lot about ancient societies, but you do have to be very careful about how you read this material. Just because the tombs look similar doesn't necessarily mean it was a fabulously egalitarian society. I think we have to be a bit more careful in the way we think about these sorts of things. But there's certainly a lot to find out about them. Tiziana, if if I could now bring the story back to Paestum as a Roman city in particular, how does Paestum retain the, the Greek influences once it becomes Roman? Were they proud of their Greek heritage and did they continue using those impressive temples of theirs? Yes. So for Paestum, uh, we have a very specific date when their city becomes a Latin colony. You know, for the foundation, we kind of say, you know, end of the seventh, beginning of the sixth. For the Lucanian takeover of the city, we're also a bit uncertain. It must have been, you know, a gradual process. We're not quite sure. But uh, we do know that in 273 BC, the city becomes, you know, a Latin colony. But this doesn't mean that everything changed overnight. The transformation, the cultural transformation, the social transformation of the city from, you know, Poseidonia to Pestum must have been very gradual. And also what the archaeological evidence tells us is that the new population of Pestum, uh, the post-273 inhabitants of Pestum, they were very clever about 
you know, sort of negotiating the transition between the Greco-Lucanian identity of the city to the Roman. For example, the temples continue to be used. You know, there's, of course, you know, a level of refunctionalization and transformation of the cult. But those three main temples, they continue to be used at the moment in Pestum, in an area that is very close to the western city walls. We actually found a new um, Doric temple. So we're excavating a fourth Doric temple, which is extremely exciting. You know, it's much smaller than the ones that are preserved in the more central part of the city. We're talking about a temple that is eight meters by 12 meters. But it was built roughly at the same time as those three. So we're talking about early 5th century BC. You know, we resumed the excavations this August and we're currently working on it. But we can tell that, you know, we're talking about a temple that was built 490-480 BC, something along that line. And we do know that the information that we're now getting from the materials um, um, is that the temple was probably used until the Republican period. At some point, it was destroyed, or rather, the Western facade collapsed. And it must have been, you know, a sort of an accidental event. We're still trying to figure out that the destruction of the Western facade is linked to the collapse of a portion of the city walls. We do know that it continued to be used. So there is a level of tension between continuity and change in the transition between the Greco-Lucanian phase of the city and the Roman one. And that is very important because, you know, you can't just forget about your past. You need to take into account the long history that, that the city had. So, for example, the Heron, so that's Phenotaph, that tomb of the mythical founder of the Greek city. It was not destroyed by the Romans which is something that, you know, if you think about it, when the city became a Latin colony, it would have made sense, right? You know, we're no longer Greek. The Greek founder, you know, we should just forget about him. Let's destroy it. They didn't. What they did at some point, probably not immediately in the third century, but a little bit later, is that they obliterated it, covered it up, okay? Same thing for the Ecclesiasterion. As I said, you know, I think it's a lot more complex. It, it becomes a political issue. It becomes a cultural issue. We also have to remember that um, when it became a Latin colony, certainly part of these colonists must have come from Rome or from other Roman cities. But it's not that the Greco-Lucanian population of Pestum was suddenly kicked out, okay? You can't just basically think about the history of Pestum, as I said, as having a Greek chapter, a Lucanian chapter, and a Roman chapter. It's a lot more complex and actually more interesting than that. What we do know from epigraphic evidence, from archaeological evidence, is that actually a number of Lucanian families, we know that because they have Oscan names, a number of these families actually probably stayed, remained in power, and they maintained their privileged position. So clearly there was negotiation and renegotiation of power after the city was incorporated, was annexed to Rome. All right, before we finish the interview, I'd just like to give you the opportunity uh, to promote the excellent Paston Museum. Uh, so I understand that the tombs, for example, aren't open to the public, but all the good material is in the museums anyway. This is a very good question because it gives me the opportunity to, first of all, say that we've got about 480 painted slabs, and that means about 130, 140 tombs. And that is an estimate because, of course, in, you know, in some cases, we've got you know, just one slab per tomb, and, but you know, roughly. 
Now, many of them are displayed in the museum. The tomb of the diver has its own room. And then the Lucanian tomb paintings, they have basically an entire room for them. But on top of the numerous painted tombs that can be admired in the museum, we've got hundreds of slabs that are held in our storage. And you would think, oh, you know, that's really unfortunate because storage is not accessible. But actually it is because we have actually opened up, we have this program called Beyond the Museum. And so we opened part of the storage to the public. So we hold daily guided tours of the deposits. And that is an opportunity for the public to actually walk through the storage, to see these paintings in a very different context, you know, look at them, you know, maybe as they're being conserved after maybe they've just come out of the ground. Um, So it's almost looking at what happens behind closed doors. And finally, you've just taken up your post there at Pastem in the past year, and I'm sure that you have a shopping list of projects that you'd like to get to. How are you looking forward to seeing the side of Pastem developing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Since 2019, reinstallation works are going on in the museum, and we are now reaching the end. We plan to reopen the majority of the museum, and then by March, the whole museum will be reopened to the public because at the moment, like right now, only the painted tombs section and the tomb of the diver section can be visited at the moment. You know, this was a very important project because you have to think, you know, it was a very much needed project because you have to think that the museum was opened, was inaugurated in 1952. And, you know, even though there have been, you know, quite a few changes, but still, you know, we needed to kind of give it a new face. Then we also have a, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the excavations of the historic temple. We have several excavation projects that are underway. We also have a project that is going on at the moment, restructuring and requalification of a former tomato factory that will be turned into another part of the museum. It's all very exciting. So also we are planning an exhibition that will open up in May 2023 that will be about the site of Velia, which was annexed to the archaeological park of Pestamon Velia in February 2020. And so we have this exhibition coming up in May. Uh, yeah, quite a few things that we're working on. That was Tiziana D'Angelo, director of the Archaeological Park of Paston and Velia, who joined myself and Gillian Shepherd for the 2022 Trendle Lecture for the Trendle Centre at La Trobe University. You've been listening to the When in Rome podcast. You can like When in Rome on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter. While Tiziana isn't on Twitter, you can follow the Pastem site, at Pastem Parko. Gillian is at Lady Trendle. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. A shout-out to Ollie Julian, the composer of the music that you're listening to in this podcast. It is the theme tune to the ITV show Plebs from Rise Comedy. When in Rome is made possible through the generous support of you lovely listeners in a crowdfunding campaign, and in particular, I'd like to send out a big RV to Sophie Cleland from Melbourne, Australia. And with that, this is the final episode of Series 6 of When in Rome. I'm Matt Smith, and to all of you who have listened and supported, you've been fantastic. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>